0: All right, thank you so much, and thank you to Mike and Mike for having me here. It is a great pleasure to be here with you all and a great honor to be able to comment on this wonderful paper. Uh, It's a true pleasure, and it doesn't happen very often to, when you've looked at a period of constitutional history in in very significant depth and for a very long time, you will often find new historical takes on a subject, new interpretations, but usually they're dealing with the same sets of materials, the same speeches, the same debates. Uh, This is a rare occasion where you find just sort of a deep vein, a deep kind of mother load of new information and new material that you didn't even know existed before. Uh, I first became aware of these black conventions and the uh, uh, public uh, uh, discourse in this area through Professor Fox's earlier work, but this was the first time I really got to delve in with a real thick sense of the theories, the arguments, and the principles that were Uh, at work in these areas. It was a true, true pleasure just to have the opportunity to read it and to be able to uh, uh, think about something uh, to say in this environment. Uh, I have very little critical or negative to say about the history. Uh, I think it's all quite good. Uh, So as a last resort and given the focus of this uh, venue, I'm going to quibble about the title. Uh, In what sense is this black originalism and more particularly in what sense is it originalism? And how does it relate to what we think of and what we might think of as more conventional originalist approaches to constitutional interpretation. Uh, now I should caveat all of my remarks by saying, uh, you know, a challenge with dealing with a piece like this is I have one chapter of a much longer book. Uh, we just got a, a little preview of the other uh, portions. Uh, so it's quite possible that some of what I'm going to question or, 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 or query about is somewhere else in uh, what I'm sure will be a great uh, uh, final product but based on what I have, uh, here are some questions that just occurred to me about in what sense is this project really a piece of originalism or how might it relate to uh, uh, originalist theory more generally. So one question I guess I have at the very beginning is to think of this as a piece of originalism as more conventionally understood is you would need to know not simply what was going on within these venues, within these conventions and meeting halls, but what influence those speeches and debates and theories influenced in the wider society, and how those theories interacted with and intersected with uh, existing theories from other discourses and other segments of society. Uh, I was quite curious about this, and I, I, I saw glancing references, intersections in various pieces of the article, particularly uh, affinities between the theories being discussed by Professor Fox and some of the abolitionist constitutional theories. But Professor Fox is quite explicit in saying that the goal of his project is, and this is from page 53, to trace the connections, influences, and disjunctions between the approaches to constitutional, he is not interested in tracing the uh, connections, influences, and disjunctions between the approaches to constitutionalism and constitutional doctrine that emerged among abolitionists generally and the ideas expressed in the African American materials that he focuses on here. So this is just not part of what he views as his project, at least at the present time and and, and in the present focus. And I think that a similar set of observations could be made with a a large set of other theories that are extant at this time. Uh, Free labor ideology, Jacksonian Democrat uh, influences, nascent theories of feminist constitutional uh, uh, interpretation. Uh, All of these are referenced in some way, or at least partially, but there's not a deep discussion of what is different, what is new, and what is the same, uh, woven through at least this portion of the chapter we have here. So it's a little hard to see what is distinctive and what is uh, simply being carried over from other other veins in a really comprehensive sense. It's also a little difficult or challenging to see to what extent were other audiences outside the African American public sphere aware of, participating in, or influenced by these sets of debates. And I think that influence is going to be critical and key to determining uh, how someone more committed to a conventional approach to originalism might view or think of the relevance of these materials. So if we were gonna take, and what I had thought of last night and early this morning as sort of an old style approach to originalism that focused on the original intentions, particularly of the framers of constitutional language, although. Discussion this morning made me think that that's maybe not as old fashioned as I had uh, thought coming in. But if we think of maybe that approach, or what we're really focusing on, on is what did the people who drafted this language think about? What were their intentions? What were their purposes? Uh, I think we would have a fairly easy set of questions to ask about how these materials fit within the relevant framework. We would want to know to what extent were individuals like Charles Sumner, John Bingham, Thaddeus Stevens, the members of the 39th, 38th, 39th, and 40th Congresses who drafted the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments respectively, to what extent were they aware of and influenced by these particular sets of debates and uh, uh, theories? And I don't know what the answer to that is, but that would be the set of questions I would ask under that approach to an originalist framework. Now, if we're thinking about a focus on ratifier understanding. What did the actual members of the public understand and believe, particularly those who participated in the ratifying process? There we have some clear indication, as Professor Fox help, helpfully reminds us. There were ratifying legislatures, particularly in the latter portions of reconstruction, that did have significant black representation uh, that were instrumental in the final ratification process. I think it's reasonable to assume that at least some of those participants were in fact influenced by these types of discussions. But again, without a wider sense of how the theories relate to other extant theories of the time, it's challenging to know uh, how distinctive those views were and how they relate to other theories. I think we could imagine a very interesting and challenging situation where one set of ratifying legislatures shared a radically different view of the significance of some of this constitutional language that was not shared by other uh, uh, ratifying legislatures who were also participating in this process. And if that were the case, I think there would be a real conceptual challenge for at least a ratifier understanding-based version of originalism. Now some of those conceptual challenges uh, are what contributed to or led to uh, what I had thought last night as more modern theories, but again, maybe not so much uh, anymore, uh, of original public meaning originalism. This is where we focus on what the words would have been understood, uh, by, how the words would have been understood by members of the public or under some versions, a hypothetical, reasonable reader. Now I think under that framework, all of these statements are clearly relevant. Uh, but they are relevant in the same way that any other piece of linguistic evidence would be relevant. Something like a dictionary or a, a treatise, some other source of textual meaning, they would be equivalent to that. Maybe a little bit more influential simply because they are contextualized, they are referring to these specific amendments and the way the words are used in these amendments, but certainly no greater or no more significant than debates by Uh, uh, ratifying legislatures in uh, white majority states, or by ordinary editorialists, letter writers, other people commenting on these amendments. And two reasons to think they might be of somewhat less significance under a pure original public meaning framework. One, at least some of these statements post-date some of the relevant constitutional texts, particularly the 13th Amendment. Many of these debates occurred after the 13th Amendment's ratification. So if we're looking at them for guidance as to what the 13th Amendment meant, they are not irrelevant, certainly. Post-enactment history can be relevant, but there might be incentives to shift or shade or to change meanings or to assert meanings that may not have been obvious beforehand once these documents are given legal effect. Similarly, these these conventions and these statements and these debates are very self-consciously forms of advocacy. They are efforts to persuade and convince uh, 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 individuals Uh, uh, about what particular constitutional language means Uh, to that extent maybe we might not think of these as the most reliable objective evidence of what the text uh, 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 how the text would have been understood Uh, a final thought in terms of how this relates to original meaning is in terms of original interpretive methods Recently, many have argued, including Professors Rappaport and McInnis, that we should guide our understandings of constitutional language by reference to uh, the interpretive methods that were used by individuals at the time of enactment. And I think that the speeches and debates here are particularly fascinating in this regard, to the extent that they reflect a form of what we might think of as originalist interpretive methods themselves being used in these debates, particularly to focus on uh, the meaning of provisions of the original Constitution such as the Article IV Privileges and Immunities Clause, the Guarantee Clause, and other original constitutional texts. And I think in that regard, that relates as well to another of uh, Professor Fox's observations, which is that uh, the Reconstruction Amendments are adopted against the background of lived constitutionalism. We have had seven decades of experience under this framework of government, and we've developed distinctive methods and approaches to interpretation that have filtered down to some extent, even in terms of popular discourse. these debates, particularly to the extent they rely on originalism themselves, provide some reflected light on what, how those might have been. I want to just do two quick, uh, I know I'm over my time right now, but two quick questions, specifically stepping outside of the originalist framework, just more uh, topics to be discovered uh, or discussed. I was curious about the role of women, particularly, in these debates. I know that many women did not participate themselves, but to the extent women were discussed or uh, featured in the debates, particularly as it relates to the concept of citizenship. You develop a very robust conception of citizenship, which is consistent with some things I've written about myself and Christopher Green and others about citizenship as a source of rights and not merely a status. But the challenge to those types of conceptions, at least in the debates of the reconstruction period, was uh, women are obviously also citizens. To how do you reconcile, how do you square that circle? And the second is the relationship between substantive rights and equality rights. I think this is a, 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 a challenging tangle to untangle in the Reconstruction period generally. Uh, You make an argument with respect to the Second Amendment that maybe it should not be understood in a substantive manner given the relevant background context. Maybe they really wanted merely equal rights or not being disempowered by being denied uh, 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 arms. To what extent do those arguments carry over to other rights such as the right to earn a living and the right to contract?
1: Um, Ron, thank you. Um. Uh, a quick untangling response, uh, Jamie. Okay, um, so I'll respond to, to obviously some of the things and, and leave some others open. That others are welcome to. Right. Um, but my first main response, sort of, you know the the why originalism question, because I, I think that's going to be a pretty um, common question. Ultimately, I see myself as sort of doing three things: sort of originalism. That, there, there's a critique of originalism, a co-optation of originalism, and an engagement with originalism in, in the project. So the critique is um, essentially what I wrote in the, the prior piece, which is, exclu- if you take popular sovereignty as justification for originalism, um, the exclusionary nature of, uh, uh, of constitutional um, and legal and political um, life, really, before um, the 19th Amendment. So this would also apply uh, across gender. but. But, uh, but certainly with, uh, before the 15th Amendment, um, m- makes it quite problematic. And so, so for me, one of the things that I'm doing is, you know, it, by lo- originalism has what Jamal Green's called the race problem, right? So it's my way of trying to say, there may be a way to address this, right? So it's a, a critique of saying originalism as it's done, um, to the extent that this exclusionary has some some real legitimacy issues, it's also by calling it black originalism, I, I am implicitly saying that the rest of originalism is white originalism. And that you know that that is part of the the sort of critical race type of move that that's going on with that. But that's the critique part. Um, the co-optation is to say, ah, well, originalism is a way of, of, of giving a certain validity to historical experience and historical actors, and that's the type of thing I really do want to try to do and see as important. So I do want to see African Americans in this time period as as particularly important actors and potentially, as I said, pot- potential framers of a sort of the way we understand the Constitution after the Reconstruction period and so I, I, I see that um, obviously an originalism that is black originalism is going to be quite different from from other originalism so um, hopefully I can pull some of that out in parts of this book but I don't see that I, I don't know that I'm I'm going to fully achieve that but that's the basic concept and then finally is the engagement issue is that um, and one of the things that really struck me a number of years ago was to see in Heller and McDonald um, the, the black conventions that I was currently working with cited, and the first time that this material was cited, and I thought, you know, this is really interesting for me as someone who's who's you know not an originalist in in, in, in any sort of traditional sense. Um, to to and, and so I, I started looking at that more, and it's, it made me realize and start reading up on what a lot of you have written. I haven't read nearly enough of it yet, but. Um, is that the particularly the public meaning idea is is a potentially really very um, rich source for bringing in some of these materials in just the way that the that the court did and that the uh, people who had written particularly on the Second Amendment um, had done and so I, I I find that that sort of angle is a particularly interesting one and I think a fruitful one for for an engagement back and forth with originalism so that's that that's why I see it doing those things now. Um, I think that there's some, on the exclusionary critique portion, I think to the extent that originalism requires a, for, for some sort of validity or authenticity of the materials, um, something like, you know, so some of the critiques you had about um, whether they, they can be really considered objective and, and um, also the weight you give to the different uh, materials. Um, what I would worry about, what I would caution against, is if you have too tight a, a requirement there, then you're going to be back at the exclusionary problem. It seems to me. Now it may be that, that you know plenty of people are comfortable with that, and that that's fine. Um, but to the extent that that's a concern, that if you're too tight on your requirements in this time period, you're going to. So, are you? Too, how tight are you in your requirement of um, Henry Wilson being influenced by? The Syracuse Convention, and I mean, some of that can be shown. I think it's useful to the extent that it can be shown, but I also think it's very dangerous to make that a tight requirement rather than a loose connection. Um, and to, 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 to touch on one one other, um, the the two questions you had at the end, Ryan, which I think are the the, the ones best to deal with at this point. So, women and and citizenship. Um, obviously the citizenship that's being discussed in these conventions and is discussed more generally is a is a martial type of citizenship and it is a male type of citizenship and so there is it's absolutely true that the 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 gender problems that that in fact Um, White male discourse and citizenship at this time also infect black male discourse and citizenship. And while there are some African American women participating in a couple of these conventions, it's obviously really uncommon. And so you see things like the the word manhood, (coughs) the concept of manhood, which comes up all the time, um, is a very important one because that's basically the, the parallel concept for citizenship. And obviously that's deeply problematic. Um, that's why I think this is ultimately, uh, from a counterpublic um, originalism point of view, only a partial approach. Right? It is not a comprehensive or full approach um, and that that's going to be a problem and, and raises a problem. Now, of course, they see women as included in citizenship, but a different type of citizenship, right? a second-class citizenship, which is exactly the problem that they're arguing against. Right? Well that's just that's a gender ideology problem, which, which, which is difficult for them to get out of. Though a few, like Frederick Douglass, move a bit away from that, uh, but not fully. Um, and then finally, the substantive rights and, and, and I That's really, I think, in the materials that I'm reading, it was a nettlesome problem for them as well. And so, I mean, I, I think you're right that trying to pull that out a little more is really important in this, but I also think that it's not going to be, to be faithful to the materials, you're not going to be able to pull that out fully because, I mean, I think it is, um, at times they talk about it just as inequality, like in, the, in, in gun rights. Right? I, I, you know, A lot of this is, you know, the real concern is they've got guns and we don't, or they're trying to take our guns away so that they have them, right? So well, that's an equality thing, but it's also a substantive right, and it's also just a basic protection issue. So I, I, I think that they're intertwined, and so trying to understand how they're intertwined is probably the best that one can do with this material, though there may be some other things.